Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to let you know that we are releasing a special episode later this week, in just a day or two in fact, that will recap this year's Destination Trek in Birmingham, England. Destination Trek is the largest Star Trek convention in the UK. It runs for three days, and this year was particularly special as the upcoming DS9 documentary, What We Left Behind, made its premiere at the con. The cast of DS9 was in attendance, as were the cast of Discovery, uh, William Shatner, Kate Mulgrew. They had real astronauts there. And my co-host on Discoverage, our Star Trek Discovery recap show, Ella Pearson, was also at the show representing EI in the UK. Ella got to attend the press conference at the con. Uh, she was on the red carpet for the premiere, and she saw the doc herself. And she got to sit down with Andrew Robinson and Max Grodenchik of DS9 to talk with them about their experiences on the show and their feelings on the documentary. So stay tuned. That show will be out soon in our usual feed. Plus, she's got a ton of pictures and video from the con and from the premiere event that we'll be sharing on our social media at at EISTpod on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I don't usually plug that one, but we do have Instagram, follow us on Instagram at Enterprising Individuals. While at the con, Ella was wearing one of our new t-shirts. That's right, we've got a T-Public store now with three new Star Trek-themed shirts, and I have to say, if you're a Janeway fan or a Klingon fan, particularly a fan of a Klingon named Gowron, like I am, you should really check these out. I'll leave a link in the show notes to our T-Public store, or you could find us on T-Public by searching for Just Enough Trope, our parent network. We're headed back to the world of the spooky and scary this week with one of the original series' most explicitly horror-themed episodes. Mark Giller is back to talk Jack the Ripper and Wolf in the Fold. Oh, poor Scotty. I hope you enjoy. Let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and the next time you're in the Beta Quadrant, why not visit the beautiful pleasure planet Argelius II? Argelius II, come for the belly dancers, stay because you're facing death by slow torture for a couple of fog murders. I'm joined again on this episode by Mark Giller, author of the futuristic thrillers Hammerjack and Prodigal. He also wrote the novella Revenant for the Seven Deadly Sins Trek Anthology. Mark, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks very much. Now, I got one question, though. Why is it that all of these Star Trek episodes that involve some sort of shore leave somewhere always end up ending in horror? They, <laughs> they absolutely have to. It's like, every, yes. it's like every shuttlecraft journey has to end in disaster as well. Nobody has ever successfully completed a shuttlecraft journey safely. Yeah, that, that's a that's a very good point as well too. But yeah, it just it seems like whenever uh, you know we got uh, somebody uh, taking shore leave on whether it's Argelius or whether it's Risa, 
we either end up with uh, you know murder and mayhem or just a generally bad episode. Right. Or uh, Jordy <laughs> Jordy comes back from shore leave and he's been replaced by a, a sleeper agent or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. So, but uh, actually, this uh, Wolf in the Fold, uh, which is uh, what we're going to be discussing today, though, I think it's, it's kind of a, a happy exception to that rule because uh, I remember this is one of the episodes when I started watching Star Trek as a kid that I just absolutely dug it because you know I always I always like the Halloween and scary episodes of the TV shows that I used to watch and you know when this one came on I was always jumping up and down because it was just like one of my favorites. Sure. First, Mark, when you were on an episode of Discoverage uh, last year, um, that's our Star Trek Discovery podcast. Uh, you weren't too impressed at the time. I re- think I recall about how the show was doing. Uh, now that the show has had its day, has your opinion of Discovery changed at all? Well, uh, yeah, actually, it kind of swung back to uh, what I originally didn't like all that much. Um, I thought they had a, a pretty good run with the first couple of episodes, uh-huh. but uh, from there on in, it, it, it really, it really kind of went downhill. And uh, you know, this whole business that they're doing with the mirror universe now is just, oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> Not- <laughs> those those are tough to do. You know, even even when the writing is really good, but you know, all of this is just, it, I don't know. It just, it seems to me that that they're they're definitely kind of, I guess, maybe they were retitled it Lost in Space. Uh, because oh, yeah. it doesn't seem it doesn't seem that they've got a real good grip on where it is that they want to take the show and they're jumping all over the place. You know, I think one of the most cogent uh, criticisms I read about, uh, you know, dumping Discovery into the mirror universe at this particular point in time is that we really haven't gotten to know the characters near enough to kind of go, oh, wow, it'd really be cool to see their opposite evil twin type people. And, you know, so, yeah, since we're not as, as invested in it, I mean, it just it just seems like it's just bouncing all over the place. And, uh, you know, I really uh, it's kind of funny because I was reading up a little bit on uh, what uh, Brian Fuller's original version uh, vision was for the show. Uh, kind of doing it more as an anthology type thing and jumping from different ships and showing different uh, perspectives and whatnot. Right. And I thought, oh, wow, that 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 I think probably would have been would have been a better way to go. But it seems to me that uh, the CBS Viacom uh, are kind of taking what they perceive as being kind of more safer route uh, with what they're doing right now. And I think as a result, they're sort of in a creative vacuum and don't really know where they want to go. And, you know, it's just kind of like, I, you know, I really, really liked Lorca at first. Uh, but, you know, when they got to that episode right there where Burnham was on the bridge telling him, well, we ought to do this and this and this and this. And he's like, <laughs> OK, all right, just do it your way. I'm just like, OK, there goes the character. <laughs> <laughs> I see who the star of this program is. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, something but, that, something we talked about when you were on uh, last on this show uh, when we were talking about conspiracy. Uh, we talked about we also talked about this on Discoverage was the lack of transhumanistic elements in Star Trek, things like cyborgization or mind machine interface. And it looks like Discovery has closed that gap a little bit as we see characters with bionic implants. We even see a bridge crew member that's a full or nearly full cyborg. Do you see that as a reflection on the current times and the public's view of technology as compared to the 60s? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, they're just things we take for granted these days that uh, you know, they couldn't even really have dreamed of back in the 60s. Yeah. And, you know, of course, with the CGI and the makeup artistry and everything else, I mean, you know, they've also got a wonderfully huge budget uh, with which to do that kind of stuff. They can I think they can afford to go in those directions. It, it is definitely an expectation of the audience because they're uh, definitely a lot more sophisticated in terms of uh, technology and how much of that they understand. And, and I do like those elements of it. And, I, you know, I do think it's kind of interesting, you know, th- this whole thing they have with Stamets uh, interfacing directly with, you know, with the spore drive yeah, yeah. and whatnot. Being, you know, that's a, that's a big part of that as well, too. So, you know, if anything, I think that's probably the, the, the greatest representation that we see in Discovery of, of that particular uh, uh, direction. So, you know, again, interesting elements, but I uh, just really kind of wish that uh, they'd get a showrunner in there with a consistent vision and just, you know, mm. put it on a course that, uh, that is, you know, just a lot more uh, consistent and a lot more interesting, I think, and maybe playing it less safe. 
I see. I see. I'm always interested in the lack of like VR in Star Trek. Um, I was thinking the other day that the idea of the holodeck is an amazing invention, but it almost stands as an incredibly complicated rebuke to like VR and simulated experience technology. You got this room that's it's creating solid objects. It's using force fields and holograms. It's taking up God knows how much power and space on the ship. And you could accomplish the same effect with a few electrodes on your forehead uh, through a simulated experience like the ones you see in a lot of cyberpunk scenarios. It's it's like the hat on a hat of VR. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. But I, maybe they, uh, I think they probably approached it uh, that way for two different reasons. I mean, first off, you know, the whole idea of the holodeck, uh, you know, kind of mostly originated in the Star Trek Next Generation. Of course, that yeah. was, uh, what, 30 years ago. So, you know, I, I don't think that they really had a grasp of, you know, what virtual reality was really going to be like, uh, you know, 30 years uh, post hence. But uh, yeah, at the same time, too, though, I think it's, a, I just, maybe it's, uh, they did that as a way of uh, putting different characters together in the same environment as well, too, and not having them separated by a visor or something like that. I just, you know, I think it's a, but, you know, it's definitely a product of its time. But uh, yeah, you can definitely see how that's, uh, how that's advancing with the, with modern tech. Let's take a second to talk about some other shows on this Star Trek podcast. Uh, Cyberpunk, at least as far as I can tell, is having something of a renaissance with shows yeah. like uh, Altered Carbon on Netflix and feature films coming out like the Blade Runner sequel, Ghost in the Shell, Ready Player One. What do you think is driving the public and Hollywood back into the prosthetic arms of Cyberpunk? punk uh you know it's interesting i don't i'm not exactly sure why that is because you know i was really excited especially when you brought up altered carbon uh richard k morgan um, i'm actually as a, a acquaintance of mine he uh, he gave me uh, some kind words on my first novel hammerjack as oh, well, too, because <laughs> yeah we were pretty yeah actually he was one of the first people to uh, get an advanced copy and read it and praised it to the hilt and i was like incredibly bowled over by, uh, <laughs> by his enthusiasm about it but yeah thematically yeah i mean our, our stuff has a lot in common you know the dystopian vision the hard-boiled detective uh, noir type thing that you see like kind of sort of blade runnerish and whatnot so we both definitely had a lot of the same influences there so i was really excited to see that popping up on netflix and um I Actually, I just finished the third episode yesterday, and pretty impressed with what they've done with it. And it's it follows the source material pretty uh, pretty closely. Sure. But it's but it's also I mean it's really nice though you have outlets like Netflix who are willing to go ahead and sink the kind of budget uh, that you need into those uh, into that type of thing, and also you know to keep it hard edge and you know I mean obviously there's some pretty pretty mature audiences only stuff in there sure. as well too, which is what you really couldn't do on uh, conventional network television. But yeah. I think that uh, you know so there's the ability to do that type of stuff. Uh, there's outlets for it like Netflix now who, are, who would probably take a, a bigger chance on it. Uh, it's kind of interesting about Altered Carbon uh, that his Richard K. Morgan's original movie deal with that, believe it or not, was with Joel Silver, you know, the guy who produced the <laughs> sure. lethal, lethal Weapon movies. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, those action flicks and whatnot. But uh, I, I don't think that he found a way that uh, he could develop it and uh, market it as a conventional film. Which is really great, though. So it's you know years later, a couple decades later, as a matter of fact, that we're just a decade later that uh, that Netflix would be able to pick up on it and do it justice. Huh. But I think the I think audiences these days are I don't know maybe just a little scared for the future. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of doom and gloom, apocalyptic scenarios running around out there and people worried about global warming and whatnot. So I think the, the idea of looking at a dystopian future, uh, maybe it just kind of lets off a little psychological steam. So I think that audiences right now are, are more of a willing place to accept and embrace concepts like that. That's interesting, people sort of being afraid of the future. And I was thinking about the kind of difference between Trek, uh, which is inherently a very uh, optimistic and positive future, and that of something like cyberpunk, which 
isn't necess- doesn't have to be negative and pessimistic necessarily, but definitely uh, it stands in contrast to the idea that we will humanity will improve itself to this new level. Where cyberpunk basically says technology is going to change, but humanity is going to stay the same, and we're always going to have the same kind of social problems, and our heroes will probably have to fight against that. So maybe there is a sort of uh, spirit of rebellion or sort of worry that uh, is driving people to to fiction like that right now. Oh, sure, too. And, you know, it just seems like technology, uh, since it's so consumer driven these days and, and down to the individual level, uh, you know, between uh, cell phones and social media and whatnot, yeah. you know, it's really it's kind of augmented our very human failings, I guess. Yeah. And I think it's a cyberpunk is, you know, the, usually those are cautionary tales when you get right down to them, you know, talking about how, you know, the technology itself is not good or evil. It's what people do with it. Yeah, right. And if, you know, if people have the ability to augment themselves, they're also going to augment their own frailties as well, too. So that's, a, I think, a big part of what you're seeing right now. And maybe that's another reason that people are embracing it as well, too, because, you know, even though they don't have cyber chip implants and, you know, uh, fiber nodes sprouting from their brains and whatnot, <laughs> I mean, we, we are becoming more and more connected with our technology technology. I mean, people can't walk 10 steps without whipping out their cell phone to see, you know, what's going on on Facebook or Instagram. So it's a, you know, we're just kind of going in that direction. Uh, The technology maybe hasn't gotten there yet, but uh, we can kind of see it from here. (laughs) Going back to Trek, I've been reading through uh, some of the Trek show Bibles recently, uh, just for background uh, for this episode and a couple other episodes of Enterprising Individuals. And it always strikes me that they have specific rules laid out in the Bibles that say, uh, the, these shows are not, we don't do fantasy, we don't do magic, you know, this is a science show. And every rule they set in those guides, they end up breaking almost immediately during the run of the show. Or at least once they do, it seems like the show starts to take off. Um, they don't do magic, like I said, they don't do swords and sandals and things like that. But before you even get out of the first season of the original series, you've got Shore Leave, you've got the Squire of Gothos with knights and men with magical powers. I mean, Sulu is literally holding a sword in the fourth episode. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny you mentioned that, too, because uh, years ago when I was pitching uh, Star Trek books uh, to uh, to Pocket, uh, I got an episode a guide and a Bible that they sent over to me that's uh, from Star Trek Next Generation. Sure. And one of the things that they mentioned at the top of their list was no time travel stories. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and then, of course, at that point, Next Generation seemed like to have a time, time travel story every other week. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, they, they lay down those rules, I think, for uh, outside writers who are pitching uh, to the show. But, uh, you know, with the, uh, the inside writers and all the other maybe they get stuck for an idea like, all right, let's go ahead and, uh, you know, have uh, Data's head pop off and we'll do a time travel story. <laughs> yeah, right, about, right. Based around that. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not doing it every week, though. It's not like the time tunnel. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, There are spooky elements in some uh, Star Trek uh, shows, and they've been used to great effect. And I was thinking about books and stories as well. You know, uh, the Borg are zombies, basically. And you use the Borg, of course, in your story Revenant. Yes. Yeah. And actually, specifically from a a horror standpoint as well, too. Uh, because in that story, uh, when I was developing that with uh, Marco Palmieri, who was an editor at, uh, at Simon & Schuster at the time, real nice guy. And he just was absolutely great because he gave me free reign to do pretty much whatever the heck I wanted. So, you know, I started ratcheting up the horror elements and the graphic violence and, you know, even the bad language. And it was like, yeah, yeah, keep going with it. No problem. I'm like, oh, great. It's like, I guess as long as I'm not dropping F-bombs, I'm okay. Sure. So and I, I thought for sure that they were going to go ahead and dial that back. But, uh, you know, he understood what I was trying to do with that as well, too. So 
you know, I guess it was kind of my own little homage to uh, some of the Trek episodes that featured horror as a, as an outstanding element. And, you know, it's basically yeah, kind of like a, a haunted house story in space, you know, instead of a decrepit old mansion, though, you've got a starship that was taken over by the Borg and, you know, right. it's, uh, you know, people getting picked off one by one and, you know, kind of a mystery uh, surrounding exactly what's going on. So, but uh, I love those trappings and, and I really did. And I think one of the best compliments I ever got on that was uh, somebody posted an online review and said, this is the scariest thing I ever read. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, they got it. Mission so accomplished. That pretty, yeah, that felt pretty good. Well, this episode itself is something of a haunted house story. Uh, we're talking about the original series episode, Wolf in the Fold. It's the 14th episode of the second season of the original series. It first aired on December 22nd of 1967. It was written by Robert Block, who is a screenwriter and a horror writer who wrote the novel Psycho, which of course was made into a feature film by Hitchcock. Block also wrote two other episodes of the original series, What Are Little Girls Made Of? and Cat's Paw, both of which have a kind of spooky theme to them. This episode, like all of his Trek scripts, were a Adapted from his short stories, and this episode was adapted from a story called Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, which was also adapted into an episode of the anthology series Thriller in 1961. The episode was directed by Joseph Pevney, a name that's been spoken quite often on this show. Uh, before becoming a director, he was an actor himself, and he recommended Walter Koenig to Gene Roddenberry for the role of Pavel Chekhov, although he did warn Gene that Walter had the worst Russian accent he'd ever heard. <laughs> the start date for this episode is 3614.9, and your assignment, Mark, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Wolf in the Fold. Well, that was quite simple. Uh, Scotty, Kirk, and McCoy beam down to the, well, I guess you could call it pleasure planet Argelius, uh, as McCoy described it as uh, having a totally hedonistic culture, and uh, for some R&R, &R, but it's more than that because Scotty had recently suffered an injury to his head uh, from an explosion on board that had been caused by a woman. And since then, he had uh, had a lot of resentful thoughts about women. So Kirk thought the best uh, medicine for that in the galaxy would be to take him to a place with a bunch of beautiful women, uh, so beautiful that he couldn't resist, and uh, he would forgive and forget, and everybody would have a good time. But that didn't quite go according to plan. No, the plot thickens after that. Yeah, especially when a woman turns up dead and Scotty's standing over her bloody body with a bloody knife in his hand. So yeah, yeah. It, it just... <laughs> There's a lot of opportunities in this episode for uh, social and kind of sexual political commentary that being an episode made of TV made in 1967, I just pretty much gloss over. So that's not ever really, um, really explored. Uh, I mean, just because he got hurt, now he hates all women. <laughs> then later on, women are being stabbed to death. And it's like, oh, boy, well, he did he did get hurt by a woman. So maybe it's him. Like, I'm not sure I would buy that in a modern perspective. Well, they did have the convenient uh, medical explanation, though, of uh, him having amnesia. So they right. not, not exactly sure. It's like possibly amnesia could have been caused by his hysteria at the time, or it could have been caused by his head injury, or you know maybe that also caused violent mood swings or or whatnot as well too. So they they do have a kind of a hokey uh, explanation as to uh, what's going on there to kind of thicken the mystery a little bit and not make it such an open shut case. You know, this would have been like, ah, yeah, he's 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 guilty. Go ahead and send him off to an Argelian jail and get death by slow torture. Yeah, right. Exactly. I love that they're a hedonistic plan. <laughs> It, but uh, you do something wrong, slow torture. Yeah. Uh, here's a couple interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. Tanya Lamani plays Kara in the episode, the belly dancer that doesn't make it out of the teaser, sadly. Uh, the makeup for the character was originally planned to be very 
elaborate, including feathers, uh, even on her face. But director Pevney nixed those additions. She eventually uh, performed her own choreography for the dance scenes, but she was required to cover her navel to satisfy the censors. That's all they had an objection to. Um, the 15 stab wounds is fine, though. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, but we can't, see a, we can't see a belly button. Yeah, no belly buttons, please. Uh, we are Star Trek. <laughs> all the music in the episode is stock, that is, recycled from previous episodes. The composer, Gerald Fired... I think it's fired. Oh, no. The composer Gerald Freed did write a track for Kara's dance scene, but the Vena dance music from the unaired pilot The Cage was used instead. This episode also features music written by Alexander Courage, the same composer who wrote the show's theme song. Courage withdrew from the series due to a disagreement with Roddenberry, but the music he wrote for the Rigel 7 scene in The Cage is used during the seance. Do you know the yes. source of the disagreement between Courage and Roddenberry? I think it probably had mostly to do with Roddenberry pinning some lyrics to the Star Trek uh, opening theme so that he could have a claim on the royalties yes. that uh, Courage generated from that. And, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. No, it's Roddenberry was definitely known as a nickel nurser, and he uh, he, he nursed every nickel he could out of the franchise. And again, it's, it's his baby, so you can't blame him for that. But yes. yeah, when you when you kind of when you start playing games like that with other creative people, yeah, I could definitely understand why he'd be hacked off about that. I think he was uh, he's out after that. Yeah, this is one of only two Scotty centric episodes. The other one being season three's The Lights of Zatar. Uh, the courtroom scene in this episode that essentially makes up the third act is fifteen and a half minutes long making it the longest scene in the series total. And um, I'm not saying it's bad, but I did at one point have that experience where I kind of went, I didn't really look at my watch, but I was like, wow, this has been going on for a long time. <laughs> like I'm, <laughs> I'm into it, but this is a, this is a, we're not cutting away to the bridge or anything. This is a long scene. Yeah. You know, honestly, I don't know how the else they would have handled that uh, unless, you know, maybe as a writer, I would have approached it where, you know, they threw Scotty in jail and it was up to uh, Kirk and Spock to kind of, you know, uh, hit the streets of Argelius and try to solve. The sure. They take a recess from the uh, from the court and the, yeah, they have to go. Explore, yeah, exactly. Investigate. Ex yeah. But, uh, you know, that's definitely one of the criticisms that I've heard leveled at the episode. And that, that's fair, I think. Uh, because, you know, the, as an episode entirely, the tone is a little wildly uneven mm. uh, because you do start off with this, you know, straight big, uh, big old slab of red meat horror. You know, you've got yeah. a stabbing and then you've got another stabbing when the, uh, the Starship crewman Tracy beams down and tries to use the psycho tricorder with, uh, with uh, Scotty, which, of course, requires them to be alone together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> naturally. And then, you know, then the, uh, the stabbing of Sibo after the sequence as well as uh, after the seance as well, too. And all of that is, you know, especially with the Rigel 7 music done, is just I always thought that that was a very, very haunting theme, especially with the chorus in the background mm -hmm. and whatnot. It was very, very well done. It ends with this piercing scream and another death. And then after that, it turns into the courtroom thing. And then after that, it gets kind of hokey, you know, when they start injecting everybody with the, uh, with the, the right. you know, happy potion. <laughs> yeah. So, and then we have, you know, kind of like interesting comedy tossed in there as well too. So it does bounce around all over the place a little bit, but I think, you know, certainly for the first half though, it does maintain a very, very nice spooky, eerie kind of, and even terrifying sometimes uh, vibe to it. Yes. Uh, Scotty, the character of Scotty, alludes to the events of this episode when he reappears in the TNG episode Relics by calling it a wee bit of trouble, which is an understatement. Here's some of the guest <laughs> stars in the episode. Uh, John Fiedler appears in this episode as Mr. Hengist. Fiedler appeared as Mr. Peterson on the Bob Newhart show and is probably best known as the voice of Piglet in the animated Winnie the Pooh films and TV show. Uh, he'd take that role of Piglet a few months after this episode aired. Fiedler died in 2005 and Scotty actor James Doohan passed away less than a month later. The two had been roommates early in their acting careers. 
Charles McCauley mm. appears in this episode as Prefect Jarrus. He had previously appeared on the series as Landrew in The Return of the Archons. And speaking of spooky stuff, he played Dracula in the 1972 black exploitation horror film Blackula. Mm, so we've got a pretty good uh, horror pedigree going. Exactly. Now. Yeah, he's not yeah. by Christopher Lee. Uh, he's he's discount Christopher Lee. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know his hair. Uh, Jarvis's hair was pretty horrifying. So <laughs> yes, it's very scary. <laughs> uh, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, we have a, a Jarvis way before uh, Tony Stark's Jarvis as well, too. So. Oh, that's correct. Yeah, uh, Pilar <laughs> Surratt appears as Sibo in this episode. She appeared in many TV shows in the '60s and early '70s. Her son is Dean Devlin, the writer and producer of Stargate and Independence Day, which I did not know. Explains how he turned into such a sci-fi geek. A showbiz fan. Yeah, watched his mom in uh, reruns of Star Trek when he was growing up. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's (laughs) talk about the episode itself. Uh, We were talking earlier about examples of magic or fantasy in Trek, and there are more than a few. I mean, even even the original series alone, you know, you've got things like Cat's Paw, of course. Um, you've got Who Mourns for Adonais, where they literally meet Apollo, <laughs> you know, who is, <laughs> there is a scientific explanation given, but uh, basically he he is Apollo, like he's supposed to be the god Apollo. And you've got um, people like uh, Flint, you know, in Requiem for Methuselah, uh, a guy who has been all these different people over the years. So wh- what's supposed to set Trek apart is that everything has a scientific, you know, explanation. Um, you exactly. Know, warp drive. All these people, all these people are aliens. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is weird because, uh, you know, even warp drive is fictional. There is a explanation, but it's not it's pseudoscientifical. Uh, but mm-hmm. whatever gets you through your script, I guess. And what I think is interesting is that even fairy tales, you know, have rules like um, like a science or a science fiction story. I know they want a Trek to stand apart from other genre genre shows, but I think despite their restrictions, um, the writers of Trek, even when they added giant cats, you know, or magical elements, <laughs> they understood that a good story can have any setting. And that idea is actually in the TOS Bible. They say that. And this episode matches that. I think if you switch the sets and the actors, this plot could still work as an episode of another contemporary show, uh, like the Wild Wild West, you know, the Night of the Ripper murders. Or, uh, oh, certainly. Someone's killing showgirls in Carson City and Adam Haas and Little Joe have to find out who. You know, it could play out <laughs> in a similar way. <clears throat> um, and compared to scenarios like uh, Bonanza or Naked City, you know, Star Trek is magic, you know, in the Arthur C. Clarke way. They've got transporters and pointy-eared aliens. You know, that would be magic to uh, Little Joe, you know, back in the Ponderosa. Oh, sure. But, uh, you know, Star Trek had to, you know, I was always amazed at, uh, you know, how much they could do with uh, what little that they had on hand at the time. And, uh, you know, this where the imagination of the writers really did uh, shine through here. Now, you know, of course, in the case of Robert Block and, uh, and uh, Wolf in the Fold, you know, he was basically plagiarizing himself. But, you know, it's not, <laughs> well, it's not stealing adapting. if you're stealing from your own stuff, right? Yeah. You're adapting your own stuff. And I admit I've been extremely, uh, I've been guilty of doing that from time to time in the past as well, too. <laughs> sure. as, long as, as long as I'm borrowing from myself, it's okay. You're, you're still fine. They're not going to throw you out of the writer's. <laughs> Guild or anything like that, but uh, yeah, it just you know. Also, I think that uh, there are certain timeless uh, elements that uh, that people are just always very very interested in, and you know, Jack the Ripper is definitely one of those. Oh and, yeah. Uh, even now, even now, you've got uh, books being written about the Ripper was. Oh yeah, he was really this guy, or no, no, he was really this guy, uh, and it's just people never seem to get tired of it, and uh, you know that's true today, and uh, you know definitely back in the '60s when uh, when this was written as well too, and you know I admit I was always fascinated with the subject. It's a you know it's a sensational crime. It's also uh, an unsolved mystery. So you have a lot of neat elements that uh, go into that. And, uh, you know, you can set that in a science fiction universe. You can set it in a Western. You can set it in the past and the future, whatever you want to do. Those things, I think, just people keep coming back to them again and again because they just find them fascinating. 
Yeah, they basically solve the uh, Jack the Ripper murders in this episode. Yeah, like. <laughs> exactly. Although it's still kind of a mystery because well, we, he's Red Jack, but what is Red Jack? Where did he come from? Well, I mean, how did he uh, how did he originate? So maybe are there a bunch of other Red Jacks floating around out there in different planets and whatnot? So all kinds of neat things you could do with that storyline. Hey, I'm coming up with an idea for another novella. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I'm sure it's probably been explored in other fiction. I know that. Um, I can't remember one of the comics, maybe DC or Malibu did do a story about the Red Jack entity. But like, I guess my headcanon or like my sort of crackpot theory is that he seems to start on Earth like he kills several times on Earth before he moves out. And the episode explains that he's kind of moving in a straight line through space. So I mm-hmm. think that like the entity is like a changeling of, of some kind, like he's the, uh, an alien or he's like the offspring of an alien that starts on earth. And as he kills and absorbs and feeds off this emotion, he sort of grows more powerful. And so ultimately over these span of centuries, he's heading in some direction. And I want to know like, you know, where is he heading? Is he heading to the home planet of the red jacks? You know, is he eventually going to complete this journey? And if we ever revisited this uh, character, like in next generation or discovery or something, we would definitely have a thing. It'd be like the uh, crystalline entity, you know, that destroyed Omicron mm-hmm. Theta, data's planet. We'd find out that yes, this thing is continued to kill, but it, that's the way that it lives. And so we end up trying to not condone it, but protect it as it's just trying to get home. Yeah. It's a, you know, actually kind of used a similar theme. I wrote to, as a case of plagiarizing myself as well too, uh, back in the, back in the day, uh, when I was uh, pitching uh, scripts to, uh, the producers of Star Trek the next generation, I did one uh, called echo in the dark, uh, which basically dealt with this malevolent entity that uh, existed in a gaseous form. Oh. And, uh, what had happened was that, you know, the, of course, uh, you had, uh, the, uh, enterprise was investigating this mysterious cloud of this, you know, unusual looking gas. So what they did was they did a computer model of it that mapped it down to every single last detail okay but of course when they did that the ship's computer ended up transferring the entity over to the ship's computer okay and at that point it starts <laughs> wreaking havoc and doing all kinds of crazy stuff so sure. it, yeah and ultimately that didn't sell uh but i did adapt that into a, a deep space nine novel that i pitched to pocket years and years and years ago as well too but uh, which ultimately didn't go anywhere but i thought it was kind of a neat concept but uh, you know it's just like the star trek and horror i just can't seem to get away from uh, those two things well you know genre mashups uh is is uh, very popular these days and is very successful um, I mean, you have to break the rules uh, in fiction. It's necessary. I pull out the world of uh, Shadowrun as an example, which is a cyberpunk future mixed with fantasy elements. Um, there's plenty of other genre mashups like, uh, you know, Firefly, Cowboys in Space. Uh, mm-hmm. The world of Warhammer 40K is, you know, gothic fiction combined with space. There's even Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yes. <laughs> And did that ever did that ever get made into a movie? That uh, eventually it was, but I think it was sort of a big kind of nothing when it came out as a movie. But the book was uh, extremely popular. Yeah, just I mean, what a concept right there. You know, of course, zombies were popular and all the rage at the time as well too. Yeah. Although I don't know if that's fallen off recently or not. Yeah, well, I, I think it kind of has. The writer uh, who came up with Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, Seth Graham Smith, is um, mostly a screenwriter now. But of course, his follow up to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies was Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Yeah, and I remember that definitely got made into a movie that yeah. didn't go anywhere. And that's kind of, I think that's kind of pushing it a little. Too. Like, we didn't know <laughs> he was splitting rails to make stakes to kill vampires with. It's like, all right, we get it. Once you kind of seem like you're making fun of yourself, like you kind of lose the audience, I think. Yeah. Well, still, though, it's kind of fun, though. And, uh, you know, it's uh, just like a, a trick or treat uh, every single time I see something like that. And, yeah. uh, you know, even these even these days, you know, if the, uh, you know, I see Star Trek pop up on a cable channel late at night sometime and it's Wolf in the Fold, I do my little 
My little happy dance, go, oh, of course I'm going to watch this. Even it's got commercials in it. I don't care. It right. kind of takes you back, back to the old days. Did you know that there is a, or there was a Time After Time series on ABC? Um, it was actually canceled. It didn't last very long. But, uh, of course, based on the novel uh, Time After Time, written by Carl Alexander and adapted by Nicholas Meyer into yes. the Jack the Ripper movie. Yeah. Yes, that was with uh, Malcolm McDowell and uh, David Warner playing right. uh, Jack the Ripper, I believe. So yeah, I yeah. Think, yeah, it's like, well, gosh, I think even Annie Potts was in that movie. I tried, uh, was that was she the female lead? I forget. But anyway, but yeah, that was a, that was a wonderful movie too. I, I enjoyed the heck out of that uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I, I do remember watching this series. I believe it was on ABC, and uh, yeah, it didn't last for very long, unfortunately. They just kind of went the went the way of the, the the Night Stalker, which was another uh, one that sure. I re- I really liked. <laughs> In sure. spite of all the cheese, but that's uh, that was good stuff. Whenever you have a time travel scenario, it feels like I'm not sure if it's necessary that you run into Jack the Ripper, or if that's kind of the beginning of the end, where it's like, all right, uh, give me some historical plots here. Uh, let's Ben Franklin, uh, Jack the Ripper. Um, <laughs> like, uh, is it ABC? Is it ABC? Timeless, uh, timeless, the uh, time travel show where they're it's kind of a quantum leapy thing. They're going back in time. Yeah, um, I'm sure at some point, if they haven't already, they're definitely going to run into Jack the Ripper. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, you have to throw that in there because everybody just loves Jack. I mean, uh, he, he keeps popping up time and time again. <laughs> I like the fact that uh, Star Trek did decide to deal with Jack the Ripper, but they did it definitively. Like they explained it in that way that we described that uh, everything has a scientific explanation. And that's pretty much it. Uh, they never really returned to this character. They never even <laughs> mentioned this again. And at the end of the episode, everybody's like, great, let's go back to the pleasure planet. Uh, I know. It's like we have a dead crewman <laughs> yeah, here. Can we at least take a little bit of time to, you know, oh, sorry, Karen, Tracy. Uh, you're a real good lady. Uh, all right, let's go party some more. Do you think those Argelians ever want to see the crew in the Enterprise ever again? Uh, probably not. Humans show up and people start dropping dead in the streets. Forget it. Doesn't matter if you flash your little light. I'm not coming over there. I don't care. Yeah, I know. So it's like, yeah, they probably uh, aimed a, a lot of swag the Argelians' way just to, like, you know, kind of buy everybody off. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, we've talked about, uh, time travel previously, uh, time travel, I think is successful on Star Trek, uh, when it is used sparingly, um, as they did, you know, early in the run of both TOS and TNG. And, uh, I would point to, you know, yesterday's enterprise as being one of, if not the most uh, successful Star Trek, the next generation episode. Ever. Oh, sure. I think, well, the wonderful thing about yesterday's enterprise is the time travel works very, very well because it's just a, it's an element of the real story, which is, yeah. you know, putting, putting uh, the enterprise as, and uh, the entire universe into the middle of a, a war with the Klingon situation, which was just absolutely fantastic. And in fact, you know, I, I always thought that, uh, you know, what they really should have done at that point is uh, just kind of kind of spun off in that direction and stayed inside the alternate universe for, you know, at least a few episodes or maybe the rest of the season, because I think the uh, the, the possibilities for that were, were pretty amazing. Yeah. But that was, yeah, that was absolutely probably the best example of, of time travel ever done in the series. And I don't think they ever, they ever quite approached that level. But again, it was just mainly because it wasn't about time travel. It was a, that was just simply an element uh, of the story. Yeah. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, the, another one uh, from the original series uh, that I thought was extremely well done in terms of time travel was right at the very end of The Naked Time. Amazing uh, yeah, yeah. episode. Amazing episode. Just packed full of emotion and a lot of action and, you know, had some humor and parts in here and tragedy and everything. And just everything about the kitchen sink was thrown into that episode. And at the very end. You know, where they're warping, you know, doing implosion and then end up going back in time for three days. It's like, oh, my God, we have to live those three days over again. Just a a very, very well done. But again, just tossed in at the very, very end. It's a (laughs) small little element of the whole thing. 
So that wasn't the it wasn't the entire point of the story. Yeah, you know, I mean, where I think that where next generation I think went wrong is when you know, when you did things like Times Arrow, two part episode, like oh my gosh, it's like Mark Twain. Are we serious here? And Jack and, London, and yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I thought that that was kind of a reaching uh, a little bit as well too. So, but uh, yeah, I definitely agree. Yesterday's Enterprise, though, I think probably did it better than any episode in the entire series. Yeah, they basically invent time travel at the end of Naked Time, uh, but it's under conditions that would be at least at that time really hard to replicate it's like we have to be orbiting a planet at the right speed that is also imploding and then that will <laughs> propel us you know back in time somehow but only for a couple days so it's not like we can go uh back to the civil war or something like that well but then they kind of when uh, tomorrow is yesterday rolled around though they figured another way of going back in time well accidentally yes <laughs> no problem but which there. again they used it again though in uh what was it assignment uh, earth yeah assignment earth and then also in uh, star trek 4 the voyage home too right. they used the the, the slingshot Thing to go back in time as well too so right well other yeah, than kinda... those examples uh, when they use it sparingly i think it works well and generally when uh trek uses um sort of magical or mystical or spooky elements i think that when they're using it sparingly it works well as well um you look at episode well okay i was going to say some episodes of tng i'm not sure that these are successes necessarily uh but you've got episodes like night terrors which is kind of a you know, I liked Night Terrors. Oh yeah, I, I thought I yeah, I love the mood in that show. I mean, yeah, the mood. The, yeah, by the end of the episode, true. it it kind of petered out. But you know, the atmosphere in that and the atmospherics they had. I mean, I, I thought in particular the scene where they had uh, what was it? Uh, Beverly Crusher was uh, in the morgue, and all of those bodies just stood yeah. up. Oh, that was just that was freaky. That's I great. That was very well done. Yeah, it, it it's something that is so not Trek. Usually, that's something that comes completely out of left field. Um, yeah, and a lot a of stark the, a lot image. Of, a lot of people hated that episode for, for whatever different reasons. Maybe because it was a bottle show or ship show. Right, and, yeah, you know, they yeah. thought, oh, well, they're just trying to you know cut on the budget and whatnot. But, hey, I still think it's a heck of a lot better than uh, you know uh, later episodes we saw that were kind of trying to do that. Like, uh, what was that one where they were seeing weird things in the transporter beam? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, the one with Barkley, right. Yeah, exactly. Kind of a creature feature type thing. Or something like yeah. Sub Rosa, where uh, <laughs> Crusher's uh, grandmother's uh, lover is haunting her candle or whatever. Oh, my God, that was awful. <laughs> <laughs> that was an example of them taking <laughs> – yeah, that was an example of them taking something – like the Borg. They are zombies, <laughs> basically, but we're recontextualizing it. But this – they just went, let's tell a Scottish ghost story. It's like, can you not – can you just let that be the Outer Limits episode of uh, Reboot, more of like course, a, that it should it's be? It's more like, more like the Harlequin romance. Yeah, <laughs> right, of, uh, yeah. Scottish ghost story. And this is the thing, too, and I, I like Gates McFadden and I like Beverly Crusher's sure. character very much. I, and I really, really wish they'd done more with during the course of the series but that definitely not was not it <laughs> that wasn't what i had in mind yeah right right um the other series is uh, used it somewhat sparingly as well uh kind of spooky elements uh Empoch noir is a episode of ds9 of course where they go to like the abandoned sister station of ds9 uh, and it's all creepy there. Um, there's an episode of Voyager called The Haunting of Deck 12, which is more of a, I think, a story told by Neelix, but it's still the idea of, uh, you know, haunted ships and, uh, you know, the, the Flying Dutchman, that sort of thing is um, pervasive in nautical fiction. And so there's no reason that it couldn't uh, end up on in spaceships as well. Oh, sure. And they used the heck out of it in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Oh yeah, the, 
all that's well and good too. And you know, again, I just uh, I think that they uh, Star Trek uh, probably ought to try to do uh, do more of that. So you know, so maybe if uh, Discovery does a horror episode, it'll uh, it'll get me back on board. <laughs> uh, they probably um, they almost definitely will. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the episode of the animated series called The Magics of Megas Two. Yes. Yes. Uh, in that episode, if the listeners are unfamiliar, the ship meets a Lucifer-type figure, and they literally go to a dimension of magic instead of science. So I get this. At, the, at this point, for the animated series, all bets are off. Screw it. Just write whatever you want. That's still not as trippy as the Infinite Vulcan, though. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's true. That is a weird Yeah, wasn't one. that the one with the 50-foot-tall version of Mr. Spock or something? Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Very strange, uh, and which they somehow tied into later on. They retconned it into the that was like tied into um, the eugenics program on Earth and like con and stuff like that. No, oh, well, that's that, that's a stretch. <laughs> yeah, I think Greg Cox might have did that, but um, it's it's interesting that Gene has always seemed to want to confront this issue because um, I wonder what his problem with magic was uh, at this time in the '60s. Uh, you know, Lord of the Rings was out, had been out for a while, but it was seeing a real resurgence in popularity. And Gene himself was, by all accounts, you know, a staunch humanist and atheist. But mm-hmm. he always, <laughs> there's a famous story about him always trying to pitch an episode or a film where the Enterprise meets God. You know, um, he did a movie treatment called The God Thing, yes. um, which in a roundabout way was kind of adapted into a story like where they meet, you know, V'ger. Um and he uh, wanted to – he pitched an episode several times where the Enterprise meets God. Um, of course, Star Trek V involves Kirk meeting God. Uh, and the network wouldn't allow, eventually, um, him meeting God. In fact, the writer that wrote Megas Two originally had them meeting um, God instead of a Lucifer-type figure. And the network wouldn't allow it. So they said, well, switch it to the devil. And that went straight through. So apparently you can meet the devil on Star Trek, <laughs> but you can't meet God. Which I yeah, as was... long as you can Oh, well, yeah, it's, you know, they obviously they did. Uh, the network suits were always very, very gun shy about the thing that back in those days, at least they didn't want to offend uh, religious people uh, by portraying something like that's not God. God doesn't look like that. He's got a big, long, flowing <laughs> beard, know. And, you know, big, long, flowing. He looks like Moses. And it's like, no, then you, in a situation like that, you, you just can't win. You're always going to end up hacking somebody off. But, oh, my <laughs> gosh. Well, that kind of reminds me, though. I don't know if you've uh, ever read the story. I think it was one of uh, Roddenberry's original treatments of Star Trek, the motion picture, I think, where he had. Captain Kirk getting into a fist fight with Jesus on right. the bridge yes. of the Enterprise. Yes. <laughs> and of course, Paramount went, you can't do that, Gene. Yeah, I just, I wonder what where that comes from because... You, uh, I don't well, f- I think it's probably, you know, eventually, you know, it's kind of like, you know, with Star Trek motion picture, it's basically V'ger is coming to seek his creator where basically, you know, it's, it's mankind. Yeah. And mankind is V'ger's God. Yeah. He, you know, mankind is the creator. Human beings are the creator. I think, I guess, maybe in a roundabout way, uh, that was uh, maybe a little bit of a, a kind of a vehicle for Roddenberry's own secular humanism as well, too. Sure, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of much the same thing in Star Trek V as well, too, where, but obviously, you know, Roddenberry himself didn't have a heck of a lot to do with that, but I guess Shatner must have been very influenced by some of the stuff that uh, Roddenberry had been playing with in the past, you know, and they meet supposedly this thing that's God. It says he's God, but he's really not. He's really against some weird alien, and we really don't know who he is or what he wants, or uh, and we never find out anything more about him. But, you know, ultimately, it just turns out to be, you know, we're seeking gods in Star Trek, and they turn out to be false gods. And uh, I think, you know, maybe it's just kind of him sort of pitching his atheism and secular humanism a little bit uh, through those stories. I guess it's weird because he was never, as far as I know, and I could be totally wrong, um, really evangelical about his atheism. 
But, you know, there's like, like a joke about atheists is that like atheism is a religion to a lot of atheists. Like they're mm-hmm. just as uh, kind of pushy as um, anybody who's trying to proselytize you for a religion. And he's never, Oh, sure. And he never yeah. really was that as far as I know. But it's funny that this is like his pet story that he's always trying to do, which is like us as I mean, us as humanity um, finding God or finding a God like figure and reconciling or questioning or being like you know, why did you create the world or, you know, kind of confronting our creators, like you said, you know, I like the idea um, of the secular humanism that humanity is pulling itself up by its bootstraps and we're always improving ourselves. But the net effect is that we don't really get a lot of exploration in spirituality um, in Trek, at least not through our human characters. Um, You know, the Klingons have their own religion and um, Vulcans have the religion of science, but it's kind of left for us to just kind of guess what the state of human spirituality is like in the uh, 23rd and 24th century. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they don't uh, really get into that too much, which is, you know, and again, I, I honestly, I, I believe human beings are uh, profoundly uh, spiritual beings. And I, I think that there's a, a part of us inside of each one of us that is really seeking out God. And, uh, you know, that, it goes a long way toward explaining, you know, people keeping their faith throughout the centuries and whatnot. And I think it's more than just, you know, wanting to have some reassurances that you're not going to just, you know, go black after you die and whatnot. I just think that, you know, even people who profess that they don't believe in God sometimes are seeking out connections with other things in other ways and try to find that, whether it's uh, in uh, some kind of a cause or whether it's, you know, uh, veganism, vegetarianism, whatever. <laughs> they're, they're always trying to ascribe some kind of spiritual element maybe it's something that's missing in their lives that, uh, you know, even if they've shut out the idea of God, they still seek it in other things. So I just think that there's something, you know, profoundly inherent about, about human beings to, to seek out God and to seek out a greater meaning because, you know, otherwise you just kind of start asking yourself the question, what's it all for? Yeah. Seek out. That is a phrase that gets used a lot in Star Trek. And I think exactly. Exactly. Uh, before we move on from uh, Jack the Ripper, I wanted to recommend to people if they want to read what I consider to be one of the definitive Ripper stories, uh, you should read the graphic novel From Hell, not the movie. Don't watch the movie. <laughs> watch the Alan Moore Eddie Campbell or uh, read the Alan Moore Eddie Campbell graphic novel, which is really great. It's brutal, but it's uh, very well researched and interesting. I didn't think the movie was that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. Yeah. It had well. It had very, very good atmosphere. I think that the uh, I think that uh, the the production design on it was just absolutely gorgeous, mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful. You know, maybe a little bit thin on stories, but uh, you know, then again, and I, of course, I'm not an Alan Moore evangelist or whatnot. I've liked his stuff, <laughs> but I know that he's absolutely hated everybody, every every adaptation <laughs> of his work that's ever been done. Yeah. So, <laughs> so but don't then, don't hold that against him. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I, and I always hear, speaking of uh, creators not liking things that their creation spawns, you always hear that like, oh, Gene wouldn't have liked this or Gene would have hated this. And I don't know if that's really true or not. You know, he, he died in 91, uh, I think before uh, DS9 was really off the ground. But I always heard that he had sort of given his blessing to an early idea for the for the concept. And you'd have to imagine, you know, he was a very possessive guy. He was very concerned about being successful and even the success that he uh, achieved wasn't necessarily enough for him, but I'd have to imagine as a thinking intellectual guy, he would have signed off eventually or would have come to terms with the expansion of his idea of Star Trek into other concepts, you know, and other sort of settings in that universe. 
Yeah, well, it just it gets to the point where it got so big that no one person could uh, yeah, have a sure. total, total, you know, it's not like a, a Babylon 5 situation where you have uh, J. Michael Straczynski. He's writing the whole thing, yeah. He's writing the whole darn thing from start to finish, and, you know, he had a beginning and middle and an end planned out, and then when it ended, it ended, and that was that, so we didn't have spinoffs or anything like that. <laughs> right. So, but, you know, with Star Trek, you know, obviously, yeah, that went off in all kinds of uh, different directions. You know, again, there's just no way in the world he would have been able to uh, approve or disapprove of all of it, but, you know, I think with, like with any creator... You know, you're going to like some of the things that uh, people do with your stuff. You're going to not like other things as well, too. I know that, you know, he was very – Roddenberry was, uh, you know, from what I've read, I mean, definitely wanted to – at least during the original series run and certainly when the motion pictures started coming out, wanted his fingerprints on everything. Yeah as much as possible and to the point where he was, you know, rewriting Harlan Ellison who rewrites Harlan Ellison. <laughs> right. <laughs> and obviously Ellison wasn't very, very uh, pleased about that. Uh, and, uh, made that very, very well known, but, uh, yeah, you know, so he could be, you know, he could be a bit of a, he could be a bit possessive, but again, it's his baby and his creation. And, you know, look at, look at what it's become, you know, yeah. some good stuff, some bad stuff, you know, it slips and falls. And, you know, sometimes you may even say it stumbles more than it runs, but you know, and all, I mean, obviously there's something there that keeps all of us, including me and you, coming back to it because you know we're just fascinated by it and just really really love it we feel it with our hearts star trek is kind of more of an more than entertainment it's it's, you know kind of a kind of a lifestyle i guess in a lot of ways yeah certainly possibly even a religion maybe if they'd even if they let gene just write this stupid god thing script (laughs) or let him uh, write his script where uh you know kirk tries to prevent the assassination of uh john f kennedy or something then he would have got it out of his system and then we would have got some you know new better great scripts from him like going forward sometimes you have to just purge something i don't know but i, I don't know if star trek could have survived the fight between jesus and Captain <laughs> uh boy i don't know who i'm betting on in that one oh my gosh yeah there was that other story that he told too it's like i think one of the original st- openings of star trek the motion picture the first time you see uh captain kirk or now admiral kirk he's a uh, naked in a hot tub with some hot babe <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. so i was like mm, that would have been a very interesting cinemax after dark direction for right trek to yeah take. <laughs> which kind of makes me wonder oh my gosh you know you, i don't know if you heard the rumors about quentin tarantino maybe directing yeah. the next uh, uh film in the, uh, the the reboot series right boy and giving it a hard r rating boy you know, kind of imagine what the, what direction that's gonna go right yeah Jesus walks in on top of the water and he's like, we're going to fight. Let's do this. <laughs> Get out of that hot tub. Uh, I like the fact that this episode is kind of a, you know, locked room murder mystery as well, uh, which is yes. something that I, I'm trying to think and brainstorm, but I don't think it's been explored uh, all that often on Star Trek. Uh, and that's, you know, that's an old that's an old saw that I, most uh, shows or stories uh, tend to go to. Oh sure, you know, and it uh, kind of a, it was a way of sort of bottling the show up a little bit too, so it didn't uh, didn't get too uh, outrageously expensive in terms of production design and whatnot. Yeah. That's the nice part about Argelius; it's so foggy you can't see anything. So <laughs> yeah, that's you, know, you could have backdrops that uh, you know look like cheap cardboard, and nobody nobody's really going to know the difference. Right. But uh, yeah, one thing I really wish they had been able to uh, budget into the episode is that I don't know if you ever read the uh, James Blish uh, adaptation of that particular episode. Uh, no. And I think in the original, uh, I think also in the original script for Wolf in the Fold as well, too. Blockhead uh, had that scene where, you know, where they say all of those really wacky colors on the view screen when oh, Red Jack escapes yeah, yeah, and gets yeah. into the into the ship's computer. Yeah. It was really supposed to be a vision of hell, you know, of all kinds of, you know, Lucifer on the screen and, you know, uh, naked women on backs of goats and, you know, all kinds of okay. crazy fire and brimstone <laughs> sure. stuff. 
And it would have been really interesting if, if they had back in the day been able to do that. But I think that, that they were it was just budgetarily, you know, for you know a two second cutaway was just way too expensive. And they couldn't justify. That's but, interesting uh, because it confu- Well, it it makes me ask questions even more about the cosmology of this setup. Then because is um, Red Jack just an alien who resembles in some ways a demon, or, or he gets into the computer and then you see all these visions of hell? Like is he some kind of spirit? Or is he he's he just trying to intimidate the Enterprise, knowing that racially this is the kind of thing that they're scared of um, hell and demons and stuff? Well, it would make sense. It's a you know an entity that feeds on fear, so that That's you would true. know uh, what really scares human beings at a primal level. Too. <laughs> sure, so. but he should have put fifty uh, birds of prey on the on the view screen. That would have scared them. <laughs> no, that just would have sent them to battle stations. I think what he's really trying to do is, uh, you know, get down deep into their psyche and, uh, you know, kind of poke them in, uh, in places that are, you know, deep that we don't tend to think about all that often. Yeah. And, you know, and I think there's a lot of truth to that as well, too, because I don't know about you, but uh, if you've ever if you've read uh, The Exorcist or seen the movie lately, mm-hmm. that still gives me goosebumps yeah. because, you know, just the the just the very basic primal concepts of good and evil stripped down to their core yeah. is just something that's still amazing, amazingly frightening yeah. as well, too. And I think all of us uh, respond to that. All of us are uh, afraid of the same things. You know, we're all afraid of death. But at the same time, though, you know, I think there's some things that we're even more scared of. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, what happens to my soul afterwards or, you know, this whole concept of, you know, real evil in the world. And I think that, uh, you know, that's that's pretty universal. Yeah, and it also you know sort of gives the lie to the um, the adventurous uh, exploratory nature you know of our characters and the rational minds of Starfleet and like Mister Spock. Like if we can explain everything and we're confronted by something that we can't explain, it's all the more scary. Uh, there's a TNG episode we're going to cover uh, later on this se- season of our show uh, called Devil's Do, where yes. um, they go to this planet and this character appears, you know, saying that she's essentially the devil, like everybody's devil. And it doesn't really rattle our crew all that much because Picard's like, all right, well, I don't really, I know there's no devil. I don't believe in a devil. So what is this person? But yet she makes, you know, she, th- these abilities that she have, uh, has make some kind of convincing arguments physically. Oh yeah. Well, and the Marta Dubois, woohoo. <laughs> right. She was, uh, she was quite something. I remember her from uh, tales from the gold monkey. I don't know if you ever watched that no. show <laughs> years ago. Yeah. She okay. was, uh, she was kind of this, uh, uh, I guess uh, sort of this uh, princess type, uh, princess Ardala type thing, but set back in World War Two. Okay. But uh, yeah, no, she was she was quite something to look at. But uh, yeah, there that that episode does maintain enough of uh, doubt uh, in your mind to think, wow, is she really the devil? You know, of course, you know that obviously proves not to be the case at the end of the episode. Spoiler right. alert. But, uh, you know, there, there is a little bit of doubt there as well, too, which is one of the things I kind of liked about that episode. I thought that was actually pretty well done as well, too. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that one. Uh, and, of course, in true 60s fashion, uh, pharmacology is the answer and the solution to the problem because Dr. Feelgood comes around and gives everybody a, a little jolt of the happy juice at the end so that... Sulu's got the best line in the entire yeah, episode. Yeah. <laughs> With an armful of this stuff, I wouldn't be scared of a supernova. <laughs> yeah. So he's driving. Do we want Sulu drunk driving at this point? Is that a good idea? Probably not. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, that's when the episode turns into a complete farce. <laughs> it's, right. It's a comedy. So it's hilarious. Yeah, you're going to hurt somebody with that thing. Yeah, it undercuts a little bit the fact that we basically have a zombie in this episode as well. You know, we find out that Hengist is apparently dead. It has been dead the whole time, and he's being animated by Red Jack. And when he comes back and he's, you know, I'll die, kill, kill, um, it's not quite as chilling as it should be. Because uh, everybody's laughing, but mm. I think that that's pretty much what I think that that's what they definitely intended. Even though it is sort of a 
kind of clash in tone because ultimately this is a humanist series and we want to laugh at the, the ghosts and goblins and the spooks and the boogeymen. You know, they don't hold that power over us anymore because we're rational beings. You know, we are scientific beings that that shouldn't scare us. And they take care of the problem by beaming him out on wide dispersal. Which I'm always surprised that they don't use wide dispersal more often. That seems like that would solve a lot of problems. You got a problem mm-hmm. with a bad guy or a bomb that's going to explode, just turn the beam on wide and spread it into atoms. No problem. Yeah, I always wonder why if, if they would have would they have been able to uh, phaser him and just disintegrate him? Uh, or would that have worked? Or would the, the energy have still persisted? I don't know. Who knows? That's a good question. We never see like his energy form, um, even when he uh, possesses the Enterprise, uh, which also gives us sort of a haunted house feel in this episode. So it seems like they... So they got a chance to go uh, kind of uh, fantastical, and they wanted to check all the boxes. So we've got a, yeah. a locked murder room mystery. We've got a ghost story. We've got a haunted house story. We've got a monster story, a zombie story. They kind of get it all done in one. Oh, yeah, yeah. They covered all the bases there, too. And it was really when he was in the ship's computer, too, and he was uh, trying to taunt everybody and scare them and whatnot. I'm blood, your boy, in our blood. I'm you know, Piglet, no. The, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but the sound, of, you know, the the sound processing they did on his voice was fantastic. Yeah, for that. that was that was pretty effective. Although I still think it would be hilarious if somebody on YouTube uh, took Piglet and then stuck some of the words that uh, <laughs> just was speaking <laughs> in Wolf in the Fold and just kind of you know synced it up there and did an animation thing like sure. that. I think that would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we uh, sort of wrap it up here, uh, do you have any uh, last thoughts about the episode? Anything you wanted to say? Well, it takes a lot of criticism because a lot of people uh, look upon it these days as uh, problematic because they view it as being very sexist and, you know, uh, very male-oriented, male-dominated, that type of thing. You know, certainly wouldn't wouldn't qualify as a, a favorite of the Me Too movement, I guess. But, you know, again, it just that sort of thing bothers me because you really – Star Trek was a product of its time. So, yeah, sure. you got the belly dancer in the beginning. You know, maybe it's a bit sexist, you know, with all of them wanting to go off to the, uh, to the bars and cruise for the women and all the rest of that stuff. But, you know, it's just uh, – it's it is a product of its time, and I think that you know you can't uh, you can't uh, judge things uh, so harshly by today's climate, uh, you know, based on when it came out. So all in all, it's, again, it's a good episode. Uh, you know, probably not the perfect Star Trek episode, but it's good for a few scares, and it's got a nice haunting, spooky mood to it, and uh, definitely a, a fun thing to watch on a dark and stormy night. Yeah, I mean, those elements of it haven't aged particularly well, really, um, in regards to its sexual politics. I also like the fact that, uh, oh, Spock just lets us know that women get scared more easily, so they're weaker. It's like, okay, well, these elements of the show are something that we're not really going to carry forward into the future, but ultimately, it's an episode where Jack the Ripper possesses the Enterprise, and I mean, that's pretty cool. So um, Can't go wrong with that. Yeah, and I think it's, it's healthy for the science-focused Trek to walk on the wild side once in a while and flirt with these fantastical or horror themes. Uh, it's cool. We didn't even talk about just plain old monsters, you know, uh, like the Horda or the Mugatu, you know, Monsters of the Week, um, <laughs> which is sort of like, a, you know, Frankenstein-y type of thing, or the mummy. Maybe you can answer this question for me real briefly, though. Sure. Speaking of the Mugatu, did you ever see Zoolander? Yes. Will Ferrell's character, Mugatu? Yes. Looks like a Mugatu. Yes. I, was that deliberate? <laughs> That, yes, I believe that that is a specific uh, illusion. Uh, and whether it was Stiller that wrote the script and he's a Trek fan, I mean, I'm, who's not a Trek fan? But yeah, I think that that was, um, that was definitely on purpose. Oh, that was funny. That was funny. But uh, yeah, no, actually, the monsters, monsters don't scare me nearly as much as, uh, as the ghosts and the, the demons, that type of thing. Yeah. So. Well, the last time you were on the show, you pegged Captain Kirk as your favorite captain. What mythical figure or monster would you like to see Kirk go up against? And we've already discussed uh, Jesus Christ at this point. 
Oh, okay. Uh, well, actually, it would have been nice to see him fight the rock monster he was supposed to write in, uh, fight in Star Trek <laughs> Five. Right, but yeah. <laughs> I get, we had to wait for uh, Tim Allen and Galaxy Quest to get that. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, you know, he fought himself sort of in Star Trek Six, so that would have been a. Uh, that's uh that was a pretty good one as well too. That's so, true. but uh, yeah, well, I guess we'll we'll just stick with Jesus. We'll see who would win in a fight. <laughs> who would win in a fight, Jesus or Captain Kirk? <laughs> I'd always. I mean, this is so cheesy, but I'd I'd like to see him go up against Dracula. You know, uh, sure, Ooh. Dracula is, has magic powers, but he's also known for his intellect. So it'd be a battle of the minds. <laughs> that would be interesting. And you have the scene where Kirk has to seduce Renfield to portray Ra- Dracula to give him an advantage. <laughs> Uh, not unless Renfield was a woman. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we're, <laughs> and a very fetching one at that. <laughs> we'll recast that part. Uh, this is your second appearance on the show, which means that you receive a promotion from ensign to lieutenant junior grade. The last time you were here, you were assigned to the computer corps. Now, because 24th century computers can surely do multiple calculations simultaneously, like defining pi and streaming Netflix or what have you, what would your solution be if a murderous energy being possessed the ship? Uh, I would reboot the computer. <laughs> okay. Have you tried turning it off and turning it on again? <laughs> exactly. It's the first, uh, since I work in IT, that's always the first thing I say. Try rebooting. I would uh, try to get it into the Skype folder because all the problems <laughs> that I have with Skype, I think that thing would be locked down forever. Or just, yeah, upload it to Dropbox and turn it into somebody else's problem. <laughs> yeah, right. Share it. Yeah, share it with everybody. That's a good idea. Uh, Lieutenant Giller, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at www.hammerjack.net. That's great. And people can find your works, your other books on Amazon, other places like that? Yes, most importantly, links to actually buy my stuff, which is always nice. Yeah, I will definitely include a link in the show notes. Uh, Thanks again for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed.